Let's open our Bibles today to 2 Kings chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 3, going through the life of Elisha. I did not plan it this way. Apparently God did. Of uh, Coming to a, a section on a battle on the Veterans Day. But this is a narrative section about a battle that Israel had with Moab. The title of the message this morning, Depending on God for Victory. And I trust that you will take the application in your own life, in your own warfare that you're battling, uh, whether it be uh, just an individual thing that no one else knows about, or whether it's huge and uh, others are praying with you about that God will bring the victory and you can depend on him. In 2 Kings chapter 3, the writer is telling us a story. So we, we get this historic information about uh, a military battle. And any veteran here this morning knows the seriousness of war. You have joined the ranks in an army. You're aware that you're facing an enemy, and you may lose your life in battle. As we walk through the details of the story this morning, I hope you'll get a sense of God's ability to change things in your life when you face what seem to be insurmountable odds. Last week, I said that the miracles in the Bible are recorded so that we will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, as John says, believing we have life through his name. So the miracles in Scripture are, first of all, recorded so that we will know that God is omnipotent, that he, Jesus is who he says he is, that when he died for our sins and rose again for our salvation, he can be trusted to save us from our sin. We learn that God is omnipotent in miracles. We learn that he's kind, he's gracious. We learn that he, he does what is just, what is right. And this chapter about Israel's battle with Moab is here so that we will learn to depend on God for the battles that we face. Aren't you glad that God has given us the Bible? What a tremendous book. It's God's word. It's inspired. It's infallible. It can be trusted. It gives us everything that God wants us to know. This is his revelation to us. It contains everything we need to know in order to be saved. It contains everything that we need to know in order to live a life that's pleasing to God. Someone has said when the Bible, it, it wasn't intended to teach science, but whenever the Bible speaks about science, it is scientifically correct. And the Bible was not intended to teach history, but it is historically accurate in everything that it says. Dr. J.O. Kinneman, who served as uh, the dean of a college here in Michigan, published four different books on biblical archaeology. And he said, of the hundreds and thousands of artifacts found by the archaeologists, not one has ever been discovered that contradicts or denies one word, phrase, clause, or sentence of the Bible, but always confirms and verifies the facts of the biblical record. We don't need any archaeological discoveries, any modern-day discoveries, to prove that the Bible is true. But whenever we find something in archaeology, it's interesting that it agrees with the biblical narrative. There was just such a discovery in 1868 by a German missionary, and that discovery was called the Moabite Stone. You can look it up and, and read about it. And on that stone is the recorded uh, the, the, the witness, the record of this event in chapter 3 right here, written by Misha, the king of Moab himself. Misha is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 3, and down in verse 4 you'll see his name. And so he had chiseled in this Moabite stone uh, his 
his explanation of what happened in this battle as well as other battles that he fought with Israel. At least that's the way he told the story about the battle. The text of scripture tells us that they retreated to his palace in Kerharaseth in 2 Kings 3.25 and that they left him there, uh, but uh, God was the one who gave Israel the victory. In the Moabite stone, it appears that Misha is the victor. So let's watch and see how God defeats the Moabites and learn how we can depend on him for the battles that we face on a daily basis in our own lives. First of all, he used the prophet Elisha to assure Israel and Judah that the victory would be theirs. Elisha plays a small part in the chapter, but that's what he's here for. He's going to assure them that God said the victory would be theirs. Now you remember about Ahaziah's weakness, uh, and that weakness opened the door for war against Moab in 2 Kings chapter 1. We looked at that before. Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice, that uh, parapet around the palace, and he fell off, and he went to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, uh, to see if he was going to live. Elisha stopped the messengers on their way, told them to go back and tell Ahaziah that he would not recover from his fall, and indeed, he died. So now in 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, let's read the text. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and like his mother. For he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. Jehoram, in some of your texts, if you have a different translation, call him, refer to him as Joram. And I think that's uh, there because it's easy to confuse this one with the king of Judah, who is also named Jehoram. Uh, but here, Jehoram is the second son of Ahab. He ruled Israel for 12 years. Israel, the 10 tribes to the north. Judah, the two tribes to the south. Well, Jehoram removed the pillar of Baal but Ahab, uh, that, that Ahab had set up to worship, but he still worshipped the golden calf and allowed Baal worship in Israel. So he, he went so far as to remove one idol but left a lot of others. Let's read verses 4 and 5 now. And Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep master. That is, he was a herdsman. They had lots of sheep. And rendered unto the king of Israel an hundred thousand lambs and an hundred thousand rams with the wool. But it came to pass when Ahab was dead that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Ahab had collected these animals every year from Misha, the king of Moab. And when Ahab died, Misha decided this is a good time not to have to pay this tribute anymore. And he rebelled against the rule of Ahab's first son, Ahaziah, whom we found out in chapter 1, is now dead. And Jehoram is trying to reinstitute that tax again against Moab. Let's look at Jehoram. He asked Jehoshaphat to join him in battle against Misha in Moab. And Jehoshaphat had been ruling in Judah for 18 years. And Jehoshaphat agreed to help, verses 7 and 8. And he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab hath rebelled against me, Wilt thou go with me against Moab to battle? And he said, I will go up. I am as thou art, my people as thy people, my horses as thy horses. And he said, Which way shall we go up? And he answered, The way through the wilderness of Edom. They decided to march, if you think of the, the map of Israel, 
On the west side of the Dead Sea, they marched south on that edge of the sea. They went down into Edom and then turned north into Moab. The king of Edom was a vassal under the protection of Jehoshaphat. And he was obligated to help. So he was recruited in their fight against Moab. And so now there are three kings, Jehoram, Jehoshaphat, and the king of Edom. On the trip through Edom, they started to think, maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. (laughs) Verses 9 and 10, let's read. So the king of Israel went, and the king of Judah, and the king of Edom. And they fetched a compass of seven days' journey, and there was no water for the host and for the cattle that followed them. And the king of Israel, as Jehoram said, Alas, that the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Things weren't looking good. It says that these three kings fetched a compass. That is, they circled through Edom to Moab. The border there was the least defended of the Moabites because it's rugged in its terrain It formed a a natural boundary to the south of Moab. The brook there, Zered, was dry. The cattle that uh, were the army's food supply was in trouble. The soldiers had no water to drink. Uh, The horses that pulled the war chariots couldn't drink. Uh, Everyone was getting thirsty. And when... um, When we depend on our own plans for victory, we're often headed for trouble. Uh, George Duffield was born in the 1800s. He graduated from Yale College, Union Theological Seminary. I I found it fascinating. He pastored about four different churches in Michigan, one in Adrian, Saginaw, Ann Arbor, and Lansing. Again, we're back in the 1800s, so you don't remember it. I don't know if the churches are still standing. But we do sing one of George Duffield's songs. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. And the verse 3, stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. Ye dare not trust your own. And then he gives a solution. Put on the gospel armor. Ephesians gives us that. Each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger, be never wanting there. And we've sung that song. But we leave the auditorium after singing it and we say, you know, I think I can handle this one. I've seen this before. I've been through difficult times. And we need to stop trusting what we can do and start depending on God because it is true. The arm of flesh will fail you. We must not trust our own. If you're facing a battle right now, find your strength in the power of God. Well, let's get back to our story. In verses 11 and 12, Jehoshaphat suggested looking for a prophet. Uh, things were they, were, they were dying of thirst. They said, we've got to, let's look to God. Okay? Verses 11 and 12. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, here is Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Jehoshaphat wanted to find out, is this campaign going to be successful or are we doomed? It was at the moment of this crisis that he thought, we need to ask what God has to say about this. Is there a prophet around? 
It's man's nature to seek God when trouble comes. When we start to feel threatened, we start getting nervous, we wake up in the middle of the night, we're fearful about a choice that we've made or about to make, we wonder if God has any advice or direction for us that we could get help. Wouldn't it be great if we sought his will all the time, not just in trouble? God wants us to be so close to him, walking with fellowship in him, reading his word on a daily basis, spending time in prayer, that when those major things come up, they're just treated just like the minor things. God says, I'll get you through this. Just trust me. Don't get to the place of despair before you open your Bible and start to pray. Have those continual conversations with God as you walk with him. Well, in verses 13 through 15, Elisha agrees to help, but we see a reticence here. He's kind of reluctant to do it. It's kind of interesting. Verse 13, And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, What have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy mother. And the king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Again, we're in trouble. He refers to himself as these three kings. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee. But now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. He told Jehoram, the king of Israel, to ask the prophets of his father and of his mother. Do you remember who his parents were? Ahab and Jezebel. <laughs> Obviously, he's being sarcastic here. He had rebuked Jehoram's brother Ahaziah for going to Beelzebub instead of asking God to see if he would live. Remember, he went to the prophets in Edom. In fact, we look at his wording back in 2 Kings 1.16. It says, Elisha asked, Is it not because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? It sounds exactly what Jehoshaphat is, is, is asking now in chapter 3, verse 11. Is there not a, here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? Jehoshaphat is seeing, seeking the prophet. And while Elisha didn't feel any obligation to help Jehoram, who was evil, king of Israel, to the north, he had some regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, to the south, and he said that he would seek God. In doing so, he called this musician, this minstrel, to play, and God gave him the answer to give to the kings. Now, I'm not uh, saying that when you're looking for direction, you need to turn on uh, a, a song, but I'm not also saying that it won't help. Good music is often associated with the work of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. In 1 Samuel 10, 5, and 11, 5 through 11, Saul met some prophets uh, who came down, and it says those prophets had the psaltery, the tabret, the pipe, and the harp. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul, and he prophesied. David's harp soothed Saul, King Saul, in 1, Kings, uh, 1 Samuel 16, 23. It says that it refreshed Saul. And the evil spirit departed from him when David played. Here, Elisha asked for music to be played as he sought God's direction. When we get to the New Testament, one of the byproducts of the filling of, God's whole, of, the, of the Holy Spirit of God is music. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, familiar. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. That means 
When you get drunk with wine, it leads to excessive behavior. But be filled with the Spirit. And then he says in verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's what happens when you're Spirit-filled. You'll have a song in your heart, and it'll be expressed in your, on your lips. Music is a powerful tool. We need to make sure it's the tool in God's hands to help us as we seek his will. God gave Elisha two answers about the future. First of all, he said that the water would be supplied in verses 16 and 17. He said, Thus saith the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches. For thus saith the Lord, Ye shall not see wind, neither shall ye see rain, yet that valley shall be filled with water that ye may drink, both ye and your cattle and your beasts. You're instructed to dig ditches or trenches. This is an act of obedience or faith on their part. We see it twice, thus saith the Lord. When God speaks, are you going to do what he says? When you open the Bible today, if you come across a verse and say, you know, I'll accept the Bible, I'll, I, I want to follow Christ, but I'm not going to take this part for my life. You can't expect God to, to answer your prayers. You need to be willing to be obedient here. Now, if there were no trenches, there would be no place for the water to gather. And so man was responsible for digging the trenches. God was the one who sent the rains. It says there would be no wind or rain that was evident. That means that the enemy, the Moabites, wouldn't have seen any kind of rain or, or wind. They wouldn't have heard the storm and, and they would suspect, of course, that those trenches would be filled the next day. But God sent the rain further south to eat in Edom. And it flowed down into the valley and filled the trenches. And there was enough water that morning for the horses, for the soldiers, for the herds of cattle. It was probably the valley of Tsered uh, on Moab's border to the south. God used natural means, we might say, to, in a supernatural way to provide for this army. Like Elijah on Mount Carmel, it came in a time to prove that he was indeed God, and they recognized it at Mount Carmel, and they recognized it here. So the answer to the prayer, I'll bring water. Secondly, Elisha said God would deliver the Moabites into their hand, verses 18 and 19. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will deliver the Moabites also into your hand, and ye shall smite every fenced city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree, and stop all wells of water, and mar every good piece of land with stones. This is not a light thing in the sight of the Lord. It's a wonderful truth in your own life. This, this is but a light thing. We look at it and say, this is never going to happen. I'll never get through this one. The enemy is, is too big. The battle is too large. The odds are against me. This is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. This, in this particular case, to send rain upon the earth was easy. We're talking about an omnipotent God who created the universe. Do you think it would be difficult for him to send rain? No. 
He withheld rain for three and a half years when Elijah prayed. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain. It's a light thing for God who creates the world to control the weather. And it's just as easy for him to deliver the Moabites. Notice the word also in verse 18, to deliver the Moabites also into your hand, just like the rain. I can do this as well. The wording is specific. He, Jehovah, God, will deliver the Moabites into your hand, and when he does, ye shall smite the cities, fell the trees, stop the wells, and mar the land with stones. Elisha said, God is going to deliver the Moabites into your hands, but he's going to give you a responsibility in this warfare as well, to fight by his strength, to fight according to his promise. The word of God delivered through his prophet came to pass. Verse 20. First of all, we see the water, the rain that came. And it came to pass in the morning when the meat offering was offered that behold, there came water by the way of Edom and the country was filled with water. The meat being offered is a reference to the morning sacrifice. Again, I think back to Elijah on Mount Carmel. In 1 Kings 18.36, he prayed to God at the time of the evening sacrifice. Don't neglect those times of worship that God calls you to. The water came from the hills of Edom to the south, and the country was filled with water. And God used that miracle to confuse the enemy, which is another miracle, verses 21 and 20, through 23. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings were come up to fight against them, they gathered all that were able to put on armor and upward. From the weakest ones who could just put it on all the way up to the strong men. And stood in the border. Verse 22, And they rose up early in the morning, and the sun shone upon the water, and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood, the reflection of that sun coming up and the red rays of the prism reflecting against that water. And they said, this is blood. The kings are surely slain and they have smitten one another. Now therefore, Moab, to the spoil. (laughs) What a foolish thing as a battle cry. (laughs) Thinking they're all dead and we're just going to go and collect all all of the goods that are there. The trenches and the pools in the valley were, were filled with water. There was no sound of a storm or wind or rain. God sent the rain on those distant hills, and it ran down into those trenches that they had dug in the valley. And when the Moabites saw the water reflecting in the sun, they thought it was the blood of those from Israel, from Judah, from Edom, and they rushed to take the spoil and were met with the attack of the Israelites. They were surprised. They didn't think there was going to be any kind of a battle at all. Verses 24 and 25 And when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and smote the Moabites so that they fled before them. But they went forward, smiting the Moabites, even in their country. And they beat down the cities and on every good piece of land cast every man his stone and filled it. And they stopped all the wells of water and felled all the good trees. Only in Kerharaseth left they stones thereof, howbeit the slingers went about and smote it. They were able to launch these rocks as part of the battle against the city, a walled city. The king of Moab survived. 
verses 26 and 27. That seems to be what he's boasting about on the, the Moabite stone, that uh, stele, the Misha's stele it's called. But let's look at the text, verses 26 and 27. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too sore for him, he took with him 700 men that drew swords to break through even unto the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his eldest son that should have reigned in his stead and offered him for a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel, and they departed from him and returned to their own land. Now the battle had already been won. Jehoram was trying to wipe out, he was trying to let them know that they still needed to pay taxes to subdue their rebellion. He wasn't trying to destroy all of the Moabites. And that's exactly what happened. With the work of God, as the prophet Elisha had said, the three kings did what God told them to do. They attacked the cities of Moab. They chopped down the trees. There would be no shade in the land, no fruit produced by any of those trees. They were all cut down. They stopped the wells of water. No water could be drawn. They put stones throughout the field so that the crops could not be grown, each soldier carrying a, an armload of stones and strewing them through the fields. Misha and his 700 soldiers retreated to, to the city of Kerharaseth. He came out in, in one last attempt to attack the king of Edom. He probably thought that was the weak spot in the battle, but he was unsuccessful and returned into the city. And then he did something that was repulsive to Israel. God had made it clear that human sacrifices were an abomination to him. And it stands as a sad testimony to the extremes of pagan beliefs. Kings steeped in superstitions and idolatry thought that if they lost any battle, it was because the gods were not happy with them. And so Misha killed his firstborn son to try to appease the god of Chemosh. This chapter is here as a divine lesson that we must look to God for every victory in our lives. He can use natural events in his will, like the rains that fell in Edom, or by confusing the plans of the, of the enemy. But each of us must seek him, must depend on him, must rely on him instead of in our own strength. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. If you've never trusted Christ as your personal savior, don't go it alone. Christ paid the price. You can never do it. You can never earn your way into heaven. Jesus paid it all. Trust him in that battle. If you're trying to fight battles in your own strength, seek him today for the victory. When we think of the battles that we're facing, it's easy to attempt to fight those in our own strength. We have to fight in the strength of the Lord. Let me close with just three, verse, or three verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and everything that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience 
of Christ. Don't survive any battles through your plans. Bring your thoughts down to the obedience of Christ. Submit your will to his, and he'll give you the victory. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And in a narrative section, as we've been in this morning, sometimes we think, is, is that going to be helpful to us? And we stand back and say, we're amazed. It's exactly what we need to hear. Battles are too great for us. Help us to rely on the strength that you give. Help us to be in that place where we're on a daily basis of walking with you, of praying, of hearing from you from, through your word, of understanding it, and being led by the Holy Spirit. May we fight those battles, not in our strength, but in the victory that you've already provided. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.